0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Flyover State Science, a podcast where two Midwestern scientists demystify the coolest science out of the middle of the country. I'm Jackie. And I'm Kelsey. And we're
1: here to do the research so you don't have to.
0: Welcome to our third episode of Flyover State Science. We've been hard at work, and today we have a show for you on neuroscience and neurodegeneration, featuring an interview with one of the University of Kansas Med Center's premier neuroscience researchers. But before we dig into talking about the science of what happens when good brain function goes bad, we first wanted to start by laying a little bit of groundwork on what the brain is how it functions in a normal capacity before diving into what happens when in a disease state, when things go off the rails. To start, the brain is an organ made of um, about 60% fat. It's an incredibly fatty organ. And all of this fat comes from the membranes of the dense packed in cells of the brain, which fall into two categories, which are neurons and glial cells. Um, When you think about the brain, a lot of the time people will talk about dark matter or gray matter. And this gray matter is the densely packed neurons of the brain that do a lot of the bulk work that we think of when we think about the brain. And then the gray matter is less densely packed areas of the brain where there is more of the glial cells and neuronal projections. We will upload a photo of a neuron to the Facebook site.
1: Yeah, you might recall from high school when you saw those pictures of neuron cells, they're very distinct from other types of cells. They have these really long bodies that have these kind of pegs at the end with these like feely tentacles like they're doing jazz
0: hands. But in actuality, what those little feely tentacles are doing is they are almost holding hands with other neurons and other brain cells so they can conduct messages. Neurons, the hand-holding cells of the brain, form the basis for how our brain works as far as we understand it right now. And they do this by sending electrochemical messages from one cell to another. So they use electricity to send from the body of the neuron down to the end of it an impulse, which causes that cell to release a chemical signal of different kinds, depending on what sort of signal they want to send, to another neuron. And they do this, and this basically passes the baton from cell to cell until you have achieved the end result. And these neurons release these chemicals to each other at places called the synapse, which is an area between the end of one neuron and the beginning of another.
1: And so when we hear about people talking about neurons firing, are we talking about passing of this baton, this message? Are we talking about electrical
0: signals going through the neurons? that all part of it so that seems to be the whole part of it because the neuron has to get the electrical signal that says send this message it receives the message at one end conducts it all the way down and then sends another message at the other end which goes to another neuron and actually these axons which is the long part of the neuron which can carry the message from the base to the tip can um these axons can be very long or very short In the brain, they're often quite short because the neurons are closely packed together, but in the spinal cord or in other parts of the body, these axons can be longer if they need to travel over a longer distance to pass the baton of the message that they're trying to send.
1: We think about cells being so small, but in some cases they can be so huge and spanning the entire length. It's
0: pretty impressive. For some of them, you can actually tease them apart, especially for neurons People who do neuroscience can actually isolate individual neurons themselves and attach electrodes to different places on the neuron, on the axon and on the body, etc., to measure the electrical signals. So, so there's a lot of diversity in the size and function of neurons. They can fire different chemical packages. You might have heard of serotonin and dopamine and all of these other neurotransmitters, which is what they're called, because they're just chemicals which transmit a message in the neurological system. These neurons talk to each other in the brain in the spinal cord and all around the body, like we were saying. And I think it's important to think about how quickly this is all happening.
1: I mean, you you think about moving your hand, like right now I'm talking with my hands and my brain is telling my hands to do that. And it's almost instantaneous,
0: but you don't even have to think about it too. So this these electrical signals are moving so fast that you don't even have to think about it. So the brain is very cool, and these neurons can send a lot of important, complicated information really, really fast using what seems to just be electricity and chemicals. Isn't it true that your GI tract,
1: that's almost considered its own nervous system, the enteric nervous system?
0: Yes, Do I remember because, that right? Yes, it is because that operates on a different sort of system than, for example, your heart does. So your heart is constantly getting signals: fire, fire contract contract don't die meanwhile your gut doesn't always need to be working the same way when you're thinking about eating or you're hungry you get different signals to your gut when you're actually eating you get different signals to your gut you get the peristaltic response where your nerves are telling your your gi system let's move this food to the belly let's move it to the intestines and when you're done eating and your food is out of your stomach and in your intestines you get different signals there too And even though we know that there are nerves involved in that system of digestion and your GI tract and all these other things, there's a lot that the nerves are doing that we don't know about too. The other large category of cells that lives in the brain are the glial cells. So glial cells is one umbrella term for a family of cells of a number of different names, but these different cells, they serve as sort of the glue and the structural support system for the neurons in the brain. Uh, There are several different kinds of glial cells and all of them have different functions. Interestingly, these glial cells far outnumber your neurons about nine to one as far as uh, relative abundance in the brain. So when you think of your brain just being one big ball of neurons, that's actually not correct. Your glial cells make up about 90% of your brain. And these glial cells, they do a lot of really necessary functions. One form of glial cells form the coating around the nerves, which is myelin. And this coating acts as an electrical insulation, which allows our nerves to send a message of the appropriate electrical intensity to the end of the nerve. Without the myelin coating, these nerves can't carry the impulse very well. And there are some diseases which degrade this myelin coding, and it causes you to lose a lot of your neuronal function and your neuromuscular function because you cannot properly conduct those messages. It's incredibly important to have this coding. Like, can you conduct an impulse without it? Yes. Does it work that well? No. In fact, I think there's a video that we will post on our Facebook
1: that shows kind of what the electrical impulse in a neuron does with and without this myelin sheath, as they call it. And you can see how the signal kind of splays out
0: and it goes very slowly through an unsheathed neuron. To get that fast-acting neuron action that we know and love, we need our friend myelin, which is courtesy of a glial cell. Thank you, glial cells. Some glial cells also just provide physical structural support so that neurons aren't just free-floating around in your brain cavity. Other glial cells clear the leftover chemical messages from the synapse. So once one neuron releases a chemical message to another neuron, sometimes there are leftover molecules in that synapse. And these molecules can cause an inappropriate response or a misfiring, which maybe the the receiving neuron might think that there were two signals instead of one. So some of these glial cells soak up and eat up those leftover chemical responses so that we can keep these impulses nice and tight and know that one impulse means one message. Another function of the glial cells is to provide blood support to the brain and form the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is a very, very tight sort of barrier formed by these glial cells, which prevents the passage of large molecules and large cells to the brain, which protects it. So if you're taking some sort of oral drug or antibiotic or something, these antibiotics could potentially have some off-target effects maybe in your brain or accumulate in your brain. So your brain has an automatic sort of filtering or processing, where only molecules of a certain size and of a certain sort of structure are able to get in. So the blood-brain barrier is super important. However, if you have something going on in your brain, it is very hard to design a drug that can pass that blood-brain barrier. So people like to think of glial cells as just providing the support staff of the brain, so to speak, but we are understanding that glial cells are playing a bigger role than we previously thought. And this seems to be a reoccurring theme in biology, is a structure that we think is junk or vestigial or useless actually comes to serve a function. One glial cell in particular that has been getting a little bit more recognition is the astrocyte. The astrocyte is one of the glial cells in the brain that people are realizing is more than just a support staff member. Astrocytes have the ability to conduct an electrical message similar to a neuron, which is a relatively new discovery as far as neuroscience goes. And the human has the highest density and the highest size of astrocytes in the cortex of the brain of any animal that we've ever seen. And so this seems to increase with evolutionary function.
1: And in my own field, astrocytes are getting a huge re-look. I study glycogen and we're finding that there's a lot of glycogen in these astrocytes. So we think that they're acting more like mini energy centers for the brain. So part of their function may be supplying the
0: energy that neurons need to do their function. Have people looked at the energy sources from these astrocytes and found a biochemical basis to the energy from the liver, the glycogen, and then the glucose breakdown products? Yeah,
1: somewhat. They know that the glycogen breakdown is really important for producing glutamine, which is a neurotransmitter molecule. There's some really interesting biochemistry there and energy metabolism in the brain that we don't
0: fully understand, but we're starting to learn a lot more about. That's very cool. And if you find yourself interested in astrocytes and why they perhaps have been getting the short end of the stick when it comes to recognition, There is an interesting book called The Root of Thought by Andrew Koob, and you can find that available online. It's where I learned some of this astrocyte stuff. I find it very interesting. But the story of the astrocyte and how we originally thought that it was just a supportive maintenance sort of player in the brain really shows just how much we don't know about the brain. As
1: far as not knowing... A lot about the brain, we really understand quite a lot about the molecular processes of the neuron. We understand these channels, these protein complexes in the neuron that are functioning and how the synapses, how they hold hands with one another. But I think a really big disconnect is where does that manifest the things that we think of the brain doing? Where, where, how do we form memory? How do we think? How do we process complex thoughts?
0: How do we feel feelings and these things, these thoughts that don't really have a structural thought or a physical sort of embodiment? What does love look like in the brain? We have to understand how things are supposed to work in the first place in order to fix them when they're diseased and when they're not working right. Inevitably, things do tend to go wrong, and in the brain especially, when things begin to malfunction and not work correctly, this is often lumped under the general term of neurodegeneration, which at its base just means a loss in the density or the function of neuronal tissue. Neurodegeneration can be broadly diagnosed and characterized by a series of symptoms rather than a physical presence. Often these signals of neurodegeneration will be a loss in what we consider to be the normal function or the normal just brain processes of a person. Cognitive decline. Loss of balance or mobility. Um, Sometimes abnormal personality traits coming out if someone is normally very nice and quiet but gets into a yelling match at the grocery store with the cashier could be part of a bigger thing. But we don't have very good diagnostic tools to look at this because the brain is so precious and so fragile and is so well protected that it makes it hard for us to look in there. We have whole brain imaging, and there are some things that we can see about different areas of the brain that are electrically active, but it's hard for us to tell what is going on when there is an issue of neurodegeneration.
1: Yeah, at the cellular level, what is the dysfunction going Mm -hmm. on? And I think it's important to note neurons aren't replaced ever. So when you develop your neurons and you're growing as a baby and as a young child, your neurons don't get replaced like other cells. Your neurons are in place. They will change in their synaptic contacts. They'll change in their signals. But
0: the body of it itself never replicates. And if it dies or becomes injured, then they they can never be fixed. They will die and, yes, they will not be replaced. Mm -hmm. You lose that functional neuron forever.
1: And that's why we think of neuronal injuries as being so devastating, is that we don't replace those. We won't grow back brain tissue that's been damaged to the point where the neurons have died. Um, On the flip side of that, though, it's important to say that the brain is very plastic.
0: It can rebound really well to injury. In general, if one neuron isn't working very well, your brain will shut it down, maybe just axe that neuron and then move on with its life, you won't know any better. Mm -hmm. Maybe you hit your hat or you fall off your bike. Please wear a helmet. And you, you will probably be okay. Your brain is really, really good at being plastic, which when we're talking in a scientific manner, that generally means the ability to be adaptable and to flex around these things. For the most part, your brain is really, really good at rewiring connections that get messed up. So it's wild that the brain has these abilities. It is a fragile very precious organ. We cannot live without it, but it does have that incredible resilience that we so admire. So neurodegeneration is sort of a global term, but we wanted to just pull out three commonly known neurodegenerative diseases that get a decent amount of press. The first of these neurodegenerative diseases that you've probably heard of is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. This disease really hit the limelight a few years ago when the ice bucket challenge became a viral sensation for a very, very good fundraising cause. So amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS hereafter, is a neurodegenerative disease that causes a progressive wasting of the motor neurons, which go from your central nervous system, your brain and your spinal cord, to the muscles in your body. So for some reason this disease causes those motor neurons which allow you to send a signal from your brain, I wanna move my arm to that muscle and lead to that arm moving. And it kills those motor neurons. And this tends to be progressive. It starts out small with a couple of neurons and slowly impedes and slowly gathers sort of momentum as it progressively takes away a person's ability to use their muscles and their arms and their legs. It's a very horrible, debilitating disease. It's sometimes referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS can be an inherited disease through genetic mutations, But this only accounts for about 5 to 10% of cases. It's very, very rare. This is actually more commonly a sporadic disease, which is the second subtype, which is about 90% of cases or more.
1: So what that means is you can't point to an exact genetic problem that they inherited that caused that disease.
0: Interestingly, there are genetic signatures that have been associated with ALS, and there's about 13 of them. And most of them are a gain-of-function mutation in SOD1, which is a metabolic enzyme. But we've been able to use our powerful sequencing tools to look at people with familial ALS because it's easier to track them when these are inherited diseases. So we've been able to find that there are about 13 genetic signatures that are associated with this familial variant.
1: And this is kind of a general theme for a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, where the majority of cases arise sporadically in the population, but there are subsets where it's connected to a very specific genetic problem, and scientists use those genetic problems as kind of a foothold to try to study the disease and understand what goes wrong and
0: why it might be leading to these illnesses. Another notable neurodegenerative disease that is fairly widely known is Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's disease is different from ALS in that it is a slow-moving but progressive neurodegenerative disorder where the brain, instead of atrophying and killing the neurons that do a certain function, the brain slowly stops producing dopamine. Dopamine is one of the chemical neurotransmitters that the brain relies on to relay specific messages from one neuron to another. Parkinson's disorder became fairly famous when Michael J. Fox was diagnosed with Parkinson's. But interestingly, Parkinson's disease moves very slowly and people tend to die with it, not from it. It's a very manageable disease. And there are actually very new, um, exciting therapies that can help to mitigate symptoms and allow people who suffer from Parkinson's to live a fairly normal life. But again, this is one of those neurodegenerative disorders where it's not until the disease has gained sort of a foothold in the brain that the symptoms become pronounced enough to diagnose. And the third neurodegenerative disease that we wanted to mention was Alzheimer's. It's hard to imagine any person who hasn't been afflicted by Alzheimer's in the family or a friend of family. It is a insidiously common neurodegenerative disorder that tends to be associated with age, but there is also an early onset variant of Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is thought of as a subset of dementia because this is a progressive neurodegenerative disease where neurons are damaged until there are seemingly permanent changes in memory, behavior, and bodily function. Alzheimer's in particular accounts for about 60-80% to of generally diagnosed dementia, which is just a blanket category for a loss of memory and brain function that is associated with age. There is no known cause for Alzheimer's, but there are some molecular characteristics of it that we have the ability to see after a person is already deceased. Some of these symptoms are plaques of misfolded protein, which are just when proteins are incorrectly folded, they can occasionally glom onto each other and form sort of a snowball effect of misfolded proteins getting stuck, stuck, stuck to each other. And this specific plaque of misfolded protein in Alzheimer's is called beta amyloid. This is one of the most noteworthy protein aggregates that we see in Alzheimer's. But another one is called the tau tangle, which is another misfolded protein called tau. Which can glom onto each other in misfolded protein clumps that look like tangles. And often tau tangles are associated with repeated brain trauma. Yeah,
1: no, and like you said, something that really blows my mind too, the beta amyloid. We still don't know what the beta amyloid protein does. And we have no idea what the normal function is, but it ends up getting cleaved and somehow accumulating into these plaques in Alzheimer's patients but we know so little about the process.
0: And we don't know how they ultimately contribute to or take away from the progression or onset of Alzheimer's. There's just so much we don't know. But to answer these questions, we have some of the smartest people working many hours a week on studying why exactly Alzheimer's hits and what contributes to it. Because if we can understand what's going on in it, we can hopefully understand how to fix it. And that's going to be our second segment, our interview with Dr. Heather Wilkins. Welcome,
1: everyone, and it is our pleasure to introduce Heather Wilkins. She is a postdoc at the University of Kansas Medical Center studying Alzheimer's. Heather, welcome. Thank you for having me. just want to start off by asking you just generally how you got into
2: science. So what about science drew you in? Well, I've always really had a pretty big interest in science ever since elementary school. I actually was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 7, and so science has played a pretty big role in my health. So that's probably what initially, how I became interested, because if it wasn't for a scientist back in 1918, (laughs) I wouldn't be here discovering how to isolate insulin and use it for human use. Um, And then in high school... I actually thought that it would be neat to be a veterinarian. I had a pretty big interest in animals, as most young girls do, I guess. <laughs> um, and I started volunteering at the Humane Society um, in Wichita, Kansas, that's where I'm from. That's why I attended Kansas State University um, for my undergraduate, with the intent of you know, pursuing a veterinarian degree. After about a year... I had joined the pre-veterinarian club, and they would give presentations, veterinarians would give presentations about what they do, you know, just to really make sure that you're interested because it is a pretty big investment. Um, And I actually became more interested in the veterinarians that were doing research than necessarily the ones that were treating animals on a day-to-day basis, and so my... Um, junior year, I joined a research laboratory at Kansas State and um, kind of the rest from there is history. I guess. Did you so, join
0: a veterinary research lab? No,
2: um, we were studying um, mosquito innate immunity and how that could play a role in malaria parasite load. So really, you know, very different. Um, And I wasn't actually sure if I wanted to go to graduate school. And I I wound up majoring in microbiology. And my immunology professor at Kansas State, who I still have a pretty good relationship with, um, he convinced me that I should at least get a master's degree. And so I applied to graduate school sort of on a whim. Don't don't do that. And took the GRE without studying, so I'm not going to tell you what my score was. It was not great. Um, (laughs) And um, I actually wound up applying to Kansas State for a master's degree and to the University of Denver for a master's degree as well. And I chose the University of Denver and Kansas State because all of this leads back to me being diabetic, um, unfortunately. I was graduating from Kansas State in December. And a lot of graduate schools won't accept you until August. And this was pre the new laws about pre-existing conditions. And you had to be in school to stay on your parents' health insurance. And so I couldn't have a lapse in being in school. And so these two schools would allow me to begin in January. I wound up driving out to Denver and interviewing with the mentor that I was interested in. And he actually talked me into a PhD. And so I wound up just going to the University of Denver for my PhD. So yeah, and started in January.
0: That's awesome. So for your PhD research, did you do a similar sort of neurodegeneration stuff that you do now?
2: So what attracted me to the mentor that I contacted was the way that he wrote about his research on his webpage was easy to understand. It seems like something that you know, the public would be really interested in and something that would actually be useful. So he was studying nutraceutical antioxidants, so antioxidants from strawberries and blueberries, anthocyanins um, and and things like that, and Lou Gehrig's disease, um, so amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, um, as we've all remember the uh, ice bucket challenge. Um, So... We studied that. Um, More specifically, we studied how mitochondria may play a role in Lou Gehrig's disease. And so that's kind of what helped me segue into my postdoc as well. So it wasn't necessarily that I was always super interested in neuroscience. I kind of just fell into a lot of it. So, yeah. It seems
0: pretty natural that you get interested in it when you are in it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. A lot of research. For me as well has been once i'm in it i love it right it's just kind of the path
2: yeah you it's hard to know science is such a big area big field so it, it can be difficult to know when you're young you know you may be interested in a particular topic but you may actually start working in that area and think oh i really i really don't like this for example a lot of work that we do now is biochemistry related i hated my biochemistry course in college and now that's what I do, and I and I love it. So, I mean, you know, you just kind of have to be patient, and you'll figure it out.
0: So before we kind of move on to what you're doing now, um, I've got a very mean question. Okay. Would you be able to summarize sort of your dissertation project in one or two sentences? Oh, man. This was going around <laughs> on Twitter a while ago. Yeah, it was like, no, that's great. Your dissertation in ten words, and I thought that was a really cool challenge. In
2: lay words?
0: Ten, or ten in words. just in ten words? Uh, I'm, oh. not, I'm not restricting you to ten words, but... Two sentences, lay sentences. Oh, man.
2: Okay, so we were, I was trying to understand how an antioxidant, I guess, got into a part of the cell that it needed to be in, in order to work properly, and if that process was not working properly in someone who had Lou Gehrig's disease. I hope that's okay. No, <laughs> it's really hard know. to do. It's really hard to do on the spot. So, yeah. It's
0: hard. It's so mean. I
2: <laughs> no, it's okay. Should have sent that to you. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. So we were trying to understand if lacking this antioxidant in a particular part of the cell would lead or could be a part of Lou Gehrig's disease.
1: So, would you recommend people have lots of antioxidants?
2: I mean, they're not bad, but you have to be careful, though, too, because so. What I learned during my dissertation was, for example, families who have children who have um, neuromuscular dysfunction, like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, they'll tend to buy supplements online to give to their children. However, you have to be careful because some of these supplements come from China and they're traced with lead, and that in and of itself can cause the disease to progress more quickly. And some of them are not actually what they're labeled as and so you just have to be really careful with supplements that's a really big problem right now because you don't know what it is you don't know if it's interacting with something else that you're taking and it could be manufactured in a way to where it has you know a toxin in there that could actually harm you so that's actually a really important subject (laughs) so yeah
0: so you graduated with your phd from denver and uh, what was it that drew you to the lab that you're in right now I was interested
2: in mitochondria, so we'll have to talk about that a little bit. Mitochondria are the part of the cell that make energy. They're also the part of the cell that produce a lot of oxidative stress, which is why you need antioxidants. And so I've always been interested in mitochondria. That's what I was studying during my dissertation, kind of in an indirect way. I became interested in Alzheimer's disease when I learned about its link to diabetes as well. So people who are diabetic, Most of the research is focused on type two, not type one, but there is now some research on type one showing that you have an increased risk as well. So people who are type two have a very sharp increased risk of developing dementia or Alzheimer's disease. And so that's where insulin signaling in the brain, you know, may play a role, um, because we know that diabetes is a disease of impaired insulin and high glucose. And so I thought that was really fascinating. And so I simply Googled mitochondria and Alzheimer's disease and my current mentor's name popped up. And I was like, oh, he's in Kansas City. I'm from Kansas. (laughs) So I read a lot more about what he was working on. I actually found a really hilarious title for a journal article that he wrote and immediately thought, this person has a really good sense of humor. And so I um, just cold emailed him. I guess, luckily enough, he emailed back, and we had a phone interview, and I guess I impressed him on the phone interview because I came out for an in-person interview. A few weeks later, he offered me a job, and then we moved out here exactly four years ago.
0: Wonderful. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about the what the research is that you do right now?
2: Yeah, so we study mitochondria, um pretty much anything that we can about them. So the KU Alzheimer's Disease Center um, is in its second funding cycle now, so it's been around for about six years. The center focuses on energy metabolism and kind of, I don't wanna say alternative ways, but ways that aren't typical for possibly treating Alzheimer's disease. A lot of people focus on two different proteins in the brain called amyloid beta and tau. We know that people who have Alzheimer's disease have these clumps of protein in their brain and we don't know why, um, but these proteins clump up and there are some genetic studies to suggest that that may actually be what's causing Alzheimer's disease or a neuron loss in the brain. But recently in the news, you've probably heard that a lot of the trials targeting amyloid beta vaccines against amyloid beta or drugs that inhibits amyloid beta from being formed have failed. And so the goal of this center, like I said, is therapies that really don't really t- directly target amyloid beta. But maybe if we target something, i going say upstream of amyloid beta, then um, maybe we could mitigate that as well. So the center has clinical trials ongoing for um, exercise in Alzheimer's disease, um, the ketogenic diet in Alzheimer's disease. Um, We have, my boss has been developing what we call bioenergetic medicine tools, and one of them is called oxaloacetate, which is a key molecule that is a part of a lot of energy pathways in the cell. And so the goal there is just to provide more energy for cells. So a lot of the work that we do is trying to understand how does energy metabolism play a role in this disease. So And mitochondria are kind of at the center of of that because they play a major role in energy formation. So, yeah. Is there
1: some controversy in the field as to figuring out what causes Alzheimer's
2: in the role of mitochondria? That depends on who you talk to. So I would say that the field is shifting. I would say that the dominant hypothesis is that amyloid beta causes Alzheimer's disease. And there are some people who believe that amyloid beta is a prion, so it's infectious. But we still don't understand If it's infectious, how do you become infected with it? So, you know, some people say, well, it's a random event that just happens with aging. Then there's also another group who thinks that tau is what causes Alzheimer's disease. And tau is another protein that um, it tangles in the brain. But that group is a lot smaller. And then there are, I would say, the group of people that is growing a lot right now are people who believe that energy metabolism and mitochondria may play a pretty big role in the disease. So, I mean, we can measure changes to the mitochondria in blood from people who have Alzheimer's disease, as well as in skin cells. And we actually have a grant that's going to look at muscle from subjects to see if we can measure changes in muscle as well. I mean, we can measure these changes outside of the brain, you know, then it might be more of a systemic issue instead of just a neurological issue, so. so
1: this is kind of extending mm-hmm. the search where as we think about these diseases being focused on the brain there may be other abnormalities going on?
2: Yeah, and I mean we know that, um, like I said, since type 2 diabetes is linked to Alzheimer's disease, you know, type 2 diabetes is a metabolic disorder, so there could be, you know, other metabolic issues occurring outside of the brain and that maybe in some people, it just manifests in the brain more quickly than other, mm-hmm. other organs or tissues. But it's these are all really important questions that we're working to answer. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say there are a lot of hypotheses out there. We'll, we'll, we'll see which one is right. They may all be right in some fashion, but I think we're all working together towards a common goal. And in science, you need to be testing multiple hypotheses, especially on a problem that is pretty severe. Not only, you know economically, but also on people and their families and caretakers. So I think it's good to have a plethora of ideas and pursuing them all as much as we can. So, yeah. So in science, as with everything, big challenge would be money. <laughs> um, however, I think really big strides have been made towards that issue um, in the past year with um, the increase in the NIH budget to the Senate as well as an increase in the allocation that goes towards Alzheimer's disease. However, I think that paylines probably need to increase overall because someone could be studying something completely, you know, that we think is completely unrelated, which it may not be. Um, we still need a lot of basic science research. We don't understand how the brain functions <laughs> on a basic level. We understand very broadly, but the intricate details are still being, we, you know, understanding how does a memory form? What is a memory? What, you know, what do thoughts look What like? does that mean on a molecular level, you mm-hmm. know, at a cellular level? We think that, you know, how do neurons interact with other cells in the brain? Those are really important questions. Um, how do, you know, inflammation in the brain, which is... Pretty prominent in people who have Alzheimer's disease. Why does that happen? You know, and that's another leading hypothesis in the field that I'm sorry I forgot to mention. Um, so, you know, is there an infection in the brain? Is there a bacteria, or virus that we haven't, you know, identified at this point? That's another hypothesis. So, without basic science, we're going to be treading water. I think that's one of the biggest challenges: is having enough money to fund basic science. And like I said, not just within the Alzheimer's disease field, but, you know, in basic biochemistry in you know, chemistry, because we work with chemists
0: in making new molecules to test. So, you know, it's really important. So what we wanted to ask as a sort of parting question is if there's one thing that our listeners could take away from this podcast about either Alzheimer's or aging or mitochondria or neurodegeneration. What would you have that be? That one takeaway message be
2: that there are a lot of very intelligent people um, working towards hopefully a, a solution, and just take care of yourself. We know that exercise is extremely powerful, um, and then just eating a balanced diet, being interactive in your community as well. If you need a resource, you can reach out to the KU Alzheimer's Disease Center. They have classes um, that people can enroll in to help with, you know, lifestyle changes as well. Um, If you're interested in taking part in a study, we're enrolling for studies all of the time. We need healthy volunteers as well. So, yeah, (laughs) just take care of your your body and your brain will follow.
0: For our third segment, we have a mini Mythbusters session for you in the spirit of all things brain. There is a pervasive myth that has been going on for longer than my existence that humans only use 10% of their brains. In fact, this myth is so pervasive that there was a Scarlett Johansson movie about it, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. What was that called? Lucy. Lucy. It was Lucy. And then there was also that movie um, Limitless, which I I think was on a similar theme, which was there was this pill that made you limitless because it unlocked the 90% of your brain that you normally don't use. This myth has been around for a long time, but where does it come from? The most obvious answer to where this myth comes from is the fact that neurons, which we have classically thought of as being the active cells in the brain, comprise about 10% of the brain cells itself. The other 90% are glial cells, which we talked about in the first half of this episode. So, if 10% of your brain is neurons, and neurons do most of what we traditionally think of as thinking, the fairly reasonable root of this myth is the fact that our brain is only about 10% neurons. Which is just the worst because it's the
1: other 90% as we learned in segment one of our show today is not just sitting around being inactive, passive glue, but they are very active players in the brain.
0: And indeed without the rest of that 90%, we actually can't do a whole lot with the 10% of neurons that we do have. So this myth, all cells in the body are, they're all doing the best they can. We can cut them some slack. They're all really trying hard.
1: So we're, you are using 100% of your brain.
0: Which makes it kind of depressing to think of how little I accomplish some days. And that's another part of this myth is um, some people suggest that this myth comes from the fact that people like to have an excuse for why perhaps some people achieve more or go a little further in their you know preferred profession than others because, well, I'm only using 10% of my brain. But if I could unlock that other 90%, I'd be unstoppable. Well, I'm here to tell you, you have the whole thing at your capacity. You can do whatever you want. Your brain will not hold you back. So that's your mini MythBusters. You do in fact use 100% of your brain. You are just 10% neurons, but your brain is 100% functional and 100% awesome. We'd like to thank Bryce Jensen for the music at the beginning of the show. Thank you to PodTrack for tracking our podcast metrics and analytics. And a big thank you to all of you wonderful listeners for listening to our show and supporting us and supporting science. We really appreciate your enthusiasm. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes and join us on our Facebook group at Flyover State Science to share your questions, comments, concerns, and ideas for our Science Mythbusters section.